My name is Chuck Myers with Martial Arts Med, and today we are going to talk about the very important topic, and that is sleep. Um, we have a very special guest here, Dr. Owens, and he's been studying sleep for about 10, 10 years, and is board certified in pulmonary critical care and board certified in sleep medicine. Welcome, Dr. Owens. Thanks, Chuck. Really uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about sleep, and um, I guess we'll just get right into it. And what is sleep? Why do we sleep? It's probably easier to tell you what is sleep, um, but it's actually really hard to tell you why we need to sleep. So that if you can answer the question or find out why we sleep, you'd win, you know, Nobel Prize. So what is sleep? Um, you know, it's a it's a reversible state of consciousness or unconsciousness. We take care of a lot of patients here in the hospital that are unconscious because they're in a coma. You can't wake them up. Sleep looks just like that, except when you go in, you talk to them, you touch them, then they wake up. So it's this reversible state of unconsciousness. Um, but there is a lot going on. Brain is active, uh, heart, uh, digestive tract, all are doing things that are really important. So um, again, kind of a mystery, but it used to be thought that wake was a really active time and sleep was purely for rest. Turns out your body's not really resting, it's doing a lot of other functions at that time. Um, why do we sleep? Again, don't know, but if you look at it from a couple different points of view, it seems that sleep is really important in terms of learning and memory. So if I teach you something today uh, and I keep you awake all night and I ask you about it tomorrow, I test you, you're not gonna do very well on the test, but if I let you sleep, you do better. Um, if we don't let people sleep, their immune function gets impaired. They start to get pneumonias and other infections more commonly than other people. So sleep seems to have a lot to do with uh, learning and memory, but also with other functions you wouldn't think about, like your immune system. Hmm. So with learning and memory, you know, we as, uh, you know, any, any job out there or we have a hobby that we like to participate in and we waste time or not waste time but we end up staying up late studying staying up late um, trying to get better at that um, whatever that that thing is that we enjoy um, so you're saying that if we would just choose to go to bed a little earlier we may retain more of that information yeah absolutely so i think um you know I waste time on the internet too or you know doing things that I like to do to kind of decompress before I go to bed and uh, I'm not telling people not to do that kind of stuff but I do think that everybody should just be aware of how important sleep is and if you can get a little bit more sleep you'll probably be a little bit sharper the next day um, so I think it's more about finding that balance that you know staying up for an extra hour uh, surfing the web you know maybe you can do that for 20 minutes 30 minutes get ready for bed and then reserve the other 30 minutes for better sleep time. Okay. So, it, so it shouldn't be an either or. If you need time to decompress, you should be able to get that, but just not at the expense of sleep. Okay. And um, with that said, you're saying, you know, using your cell phone before bed, and we all read and know about the, the blue light that it emits before yep. we sleep. And what effect does that have on our sleep, um, doing that before before we rest? Yeah, I mean, sleep is such a big topic, so we're, we're going in kind of a natural order here, but you know, your body has a, a natural rhythm, which we'll talk about, you know, kind of gets messed up when you're working nights, um, but your body has a natural rhythm, um, and that rhythm is about 24 hours long, and the biggest cues for that rhythm are um, things like light from the outside world. Um, another cue is something like melatonin, which your body makes. 
if you start looking at bright light at 11 o'clock at night, that is not the normal time. Your body's not expecting that. So for some people, that can cause problems. Um, you know, I personally look at my phone, and I'm kind of always sleep deprived. So looking at my phone right before I go to bed doesn't affect me very much. But if you are having trouble with sleep, um, specifically falling asleep, it could be because you're getting light at the wrong time. You need hmm. to be mindful of that. Okay. And at what point would you say before going to bed that you should start shutting it down, turning lights down? Um, is that going to help you get to sleep faster and get more rest, be, have a more restful sleep? Yeah, but I, I guess I would emphasize I really, um, everything is in context. So if you're not having a problem with sleep, I'm not sure that putting the phone down earlier is going to make you feel much different. But if you are having a problem with sleep, um, then you should try to mimic kind of the natural light that's out in the environment. So here in San Diego in the summer, you know, getting light 8 o'clock at night or so, probably not a problem getting it at 11 o'clock midnight, that might be a problem. Hmm. Um, and it does seem, you know, so Apple and other um, phone producers, you know, they have kind of this nighttime app which will shift the wavelength so you're getting more red light and less blue light. And it seems like blue is really the characteristic wavelength of light that affects your body's circadian centers the most. Okay. So, so that's a quick thing is you could just go to the, you know, the nighttime protection of uh, Redshift. It also, it seems kind of weird, but if you like to read, um, there does seem to be something about looking on an iPad or a phone versus reading a real book. And when they've done studies, reading a real book, even though you have light on in the corner of the room, that seems to be okay, seems not to affect sleep as much. Hmm. That explains why I fall asleep every time I read a normal book. Crack, crack a textbook. <laughs> the, the other thing I'll say is that, you know, I take care of a lot of patients with insomnia and they talk to me about how they're looking and doing stuff on their phone. I think part of it's the light. I think that part of it is also it's really stimulating. Hmm. So if I'm on my phone, I, I check my email, you know, and then maybe something comes in that either stresses, you know, if it's a work email or something or something that I want to respond to. So I think that if you're reading on your phone and, um, it is really passive and kind of quiet, that's fine. But I think people end up doing a lot of other stuff on their phone that's more active and can aggravate them before they go to sleep. Such as social media and all these other things. Yeah. Could you cover just what are some of the stages of sleep and what each stage kind of does, does for us? Yeah, sure. So um, as I sort of mentioned earlier, there's a lot going on during sleep and sleep is not um, you know, a single entity. There are different stages of sleep. Um, and, and I will preface this by saying that all this stuff is kind of new. So, you know, it's not that people have known about sleep stages for centuries. Um, people have started studying sleep by using an EEG since the 1950s. And, you know, we have rapid eye movement sleep, which I'll talk about. And that was because people, uh, investigators were looking at people sleeping and like, hey, what are their eyes doing? You know, we'll just call this rapid eye movement sleep. And they figured out that that's when people were, were dreaming because they would wake them up when they saw these eye movements and say, hey, what's going on? <laughs> and people were like, oh, I was having this great dream. And then other parts of sleep where you didn't see the rapid eye movement when you wake people up, they would much less likely report dreaming sleep or dreams during that time. So, so the different stages of sleep, um, we talk about REM or rapid eye movement and what people typically call, call dreaming phase of sleep and then non-REM. Um, or non-rapid eye movement sleep. And the non-REM, at least right now, and every few years they kind of reformulate this, is split into three stages, and they're called N1, N2, N3, mm. um, with N1 being the lightest, closest to wake, 
N3 being a deeper stage and um, is also called slow wave sleep and that's based on the EEG pattern that you see during that time. Okay. And, and the body basically goes from wakefulness to um, N1, N2, N3 sleep uh, and then REM sleep over about a two hour cycle, 90 minutes to two hours or so. Okay. And the, the amount of sleep that you get in the different stages changes as you get older and for whatever reason, as people get older, there's less of that slow wave sleep and more of that, uh, less N3 and more N2. Hmm. And why that happens, who knows? Okay. So you're saying that 90 minutes to two hours is kind of the, the window for a full cycle of the stages? Yep. Um, so that makes me think immediately of napping. So what are your thoughts on, on napping um, and how long should these, these naps be? Well, um, so great question. Let me just say um, one thing, which is something, this concept called sleep inertia, okay? So when we talk about the different stages of sleep, people think of slow wave sleep and REM sleep as kind of deeper sleep. And, and one way to quantify that is that if I wake you up right after you've fallen asleep in a light stage of sleep, you'll feel pretty good right away. If I wake you up out of a dream, um, you'll feel tired for a while, take you a while to get going. Okay, so this is this idea of sleep inertia. So when you talk about naps and the idea behind a power nap or even drinking coffee right before you take a nap um, is that you want to be able to wake up from the nap and get going. And so if you end up taking like a two-hour nap and you wake up out of REM sleep, you're just going to feel, you might actually feel worse at first. You might feel kind of foggy. Um, so again, I think most people, if you're trying to nap and then get up and do something, think about... 30 minute nap or so because that way you're not getting into those deep sleep stages when you're waking up and feeling foggy still okay same thing with drinking coffee or taking caffeine right before you take a nap it sounds totally counterintuitive but it takes a half hour for the caffeine to kick in so you get a little bit of caffeine you get a little bit of sleep and you pop up ready to go okay now i kind of want to move into which is kind of in the nap category as well but just how can we aid our sleep um and how can we get better sleep as people sure well i mean that that's a good question, and I think, um, you know, it's really interesting. I don't know if you use a Fitbit or anything, but all these devices now measure sleep. And I see people who come into my clinic who had no sleep problem, but they get some sort of score on their Fitbit that says, you know, they're getting an 80th, uh, like a B-plus on their sleep, and they want an A. Um, and so I think I just want to be careful by saying that if you don't think you have a sleep problem, maybe you don't, and you don't need to try to improve your sleep. Um, but if you are having trouble with sleep and you're feeling tired during the day, uh, the, probably the best way to improve your sleep is just make sure you're getting enough of it. Okay. And how much is enough? So, um, you know, that, that's a good question. Most of the different societies out there, American Academy of Sleep Medicine, American Heart Association, <clears throat> recommend getting between seven and nine hours of sleep every night. Okay. And it's sort of interesting that there's an upper limit on there because there are some studies that suggest that getting too much sleep can be a problem for people too. Okay. I, um, it's interesting because I was reading um, online the other day about Einstein and kind of how he, he slept, but I guess um, based on, he, he was sleeping almost 10 hours a night mm -hmm. and on average and would also, but would also be up very late and a lot of times that's when ideas would spark. Mm -hmm. He would sit in his kitchen late at night, I guess, and play the violin, and he would just be like, all right, I've got it, like, and just figure it out and, right. you know, in the wee hours of the night. But um, why is that? It seems that, it's even for myself, like, I'll be up late at night, 
Um, I may be sleep deprived. I'm tired, but it's some for some reason my mind is almost working better, mm-hmm. and um, you know things seem to click sometimes uh, in you know in the middle of the night. Well, I I think there's a lot to what you said there. Um, I would think that uh, your mind may work a lot better in the middle of the night simply because there's a lot less going on. You know, whatever you're sort of pondering or thinking, um, you may not have as many distractions from people that you're interacting with um, from email, from what other uh, other things are kind of distracting you. So, um, again, I think, you know, there are a lot of great thoughts that happen in the middle of the night, um, but I'm not sure if it's totally because people are sleep deprived um, or if it's just because you actually have some quiet time to think on things. Hmm. Um, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Einstein. Um, obviously pretty smart guy uh there are a lot of people out there who say they can get by on like four hours of sleep or less uh elon musk you know tesla and all that kind of stuff you know he's sort of famous or infamous for saying he needs very little sleep and i think there is this idea that you can that you could sacrifice sleep time and just be more productive you know wouldn't it be great if you only needed four hours of sleep and you could do 20 hours of work or whatever um and what's interesting is there may be people like that you know, who really need less than that seven to nine hours. Um, there's this guy, David Dinges, at, at University of Pennsylvania. He does all these sleep deprivation experiments. He takes 20 people, puts them in a room, and he sleeps deprives them for days. And people come out and they feel miserable. But every once in a while, he gets somebody who says, you know, that wasn't so bad. You know, I didn't <laughs> notice anything. Um, but those people are really rare. Okay. And so most of the people you know who say, I only need six hours of sleep, they're probably lying. If they got more sleep, they'd be a little sharper in the morning. They feel better, you know. Hmm. Yeah, there's like the famous uh, saying of "sleep when we're dead." Yeah. But really, we're killing ourselves not sleeping. It seems. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's been a whole lot of studies looking at, um, and most of this comes from you know questionnaires. So they they look at big studies like the nurses heart health study. So big cohort of nurses, and they ask, you know, they asked in 1986, you know, how many hours of sleep do you get, and um, people said, you know, five hours, six hours, whatever, and they carried that forward, and the nurses who got the least amount of sleep are the ones that had the most heart attacks, you know, that had the most sort of problems going down the line. So when you mention that, I think of nurses and night shift, and I was one that worked night, I had to work night shift for six years in my career, um, and I felt the difference in my body, I, you know, I felt terrible, and um, everything from how sharp my mind was to like memory recall to, you know, my bowels to everything was just (laughs) not working (laughs) how it should have been. Um, but what, what is the, what is the best, um, the best way to deal with, with the night shift and how could nurses or anybody working the shift work, um, optimize their sleep during the day? Sure. I mean, I think, uh, you know, tongue in cheek, I think the best answer to, um, you know, is to not work the night shift. I mean, it, it is a problem. Um, if you have ever walked, you know, into a hospital at about seven o'clock in the morning, and you're or maybe six thirty, and you're starting to see the nurses go in to do the day shift, mm-hmm. and then you start to see nurses coming out who've done the night shift. If you look, the body mass index of those who work nights is much higher than those who work during the day. So, so night shift is uh, it's a health problem. Um, and you mentioned some of the things you feel terrible, mm-hmm. uh, and that's jet lag right? That's this mismatch of your circadian, your internal circadian clock with the outside environment. So, you know, basically when you're working night shift, it's like flying to the East Coast, you know, or whatever, flying to Europe and having that just miserable feeling, you know? Hmm. 
Um, but but less uh, humorously, yeah, working night shift is associated with more obesity, uh, with higher rates even of things like cancer. And in some countries, working the night shift, uh, essentially people get paid more as like a combat pay kind of thing. Okay, so if you go to Norway or whatever, working the night shift is recognized as like a cancer risk and they get paid more money. Interesting. Um, so I don't know if you got, you know, how much more you were paid on night shift or not, but you know. Not much, yeah, so, three to five dollars an hour. But. Yeah, so, so it is tough. Um, and uh, in terms of how to mitigate the effects of the night shift, you still wanna make sure you're getting enough sleep. So I think that the problem is that a lot of night shift, uh, you know, cause I, I still do night experiments. I still cover the ICU overnight. I think the problem is that if I'm only doing one or two shifts in a row, I kind of fake it and I still stay up longer. Um, I try to go about my normal day and I don't get a good seven hours of sleep. So I think probably still need to focus on sleep duration uh, as much as you can. Uh, the other thing is trying to, you know, the most healthy way to work the night shift, which is really hard to do from a social point of view, would be to really be on the night shift the whole time. Hmm. Um, which is again really hard to do because you want to hang out with friends and family. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but but that's the the most protective way. Short of that, trying to work a few shifts in a row, trying to kind of build up to when you switch on tonight and, and sort of um, tailing off when you work shifts is probably the the best way to go. Um, you know, I would actually be careful about taking things like melatonin hmm. because that's also uh, that's going to impact your circadian rhythm as well, uh, and you're going to mess that around a lot. So it is tough. So, so you, I mean, this is, given the situation that these nurses are able to sleep during the day, no problem, but yeah. you wouldn't recommend sleep aids if uh, during for night shift if people don't need them? But definitely not. So, okay. if, so if you're able to sleep naturally, I think um, you should not use a sleep aid. Um, and there's there's a few reasons for that. Um, one of which is just all sleeping pills have side effects. And so, um, you know, you never, you know, like everything we do in medicine, right? You never want to um, have any risks without any benefit. So if you don't have a sleeping problem, you shouldn't, there's no benefit to taking any of those medicines. What I worry about is people sort of getting, um, you know, dependent on those medicines and not being able to sleep without having some sort of pill of some kind. And I know a lot of nurses that they are dependent on melatonin, Benadryl, things like that. And I, it, it doesn't seem that, you know, they never, every, every time I talk to any of my friends that take those, they never feel good. Like they're always like, oh, I slept terrible, but I'm just trying to, you know, but when I, when I don't take these exactly, they don't sleep. So yeah. they're, they become dependent on them pretty quickly, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I think if you are gonna try something, I would think about something like melatonin because I think it has the best, um, side effect profile. Um, what's really interesting is that uh, there are different doses out there for melatonin. There's also like fast release and extended release. I mean, there's a million things, right? Because it's not an FDA approved medication. So you buy it over the counter at GNC or whatever. Um, and, and you can use it to modify your circadian rhythm at really low doses, or you can kind of use it to knock you out at high doses of like five or 10 milligrams. So hmm. it sort of depends what you're doing with it. Um, and then things like Benadryl, or really the question is, is there any safe sleeping pill? It kind of depends who you ask, but there are good, there are some uh, epidemiological data that people who take sleep aids for years and years 
end up with things, are more likely to have dementia, things like that down the road. So I, I take care of a lot of patients that are like, hey, I just heard that this could be a problem. I've been taking Ambien for the last 20 years. How do I get off of this? Hmm. Um, so, you know, and, and we try to get them off. So I'm always trying to say, like, don't start down that road. Okay. And what's usually your suggestion to get off Ambien if they've been on it for, you know, 20 years or something like that? Yeah, I mean, some of it is education. Um, sometimes people kind of disasterize, like if I don't get enough sleep, you know, my, my day will be ruined and that kind of stuff. So we provide education. A lot of it is about um, getting regular sleep, so trying to go to bed at the same time, wake up at the same time. Again, really tough if you work a night shift. Um, trying to avoid naps. So, you know, naps are fine if they're letting you catch up because you're sleep deprived. If you're only getting six hours of sleep at night, by all means take a nap. If you're taking naps during the day and can't sleep at night, that's a problem. You know, so we do a lot of sort of education about what is what we call good sleep hygiene in terms of timing and regularity of sleep. Okay. And with that, most of the time, people can get off the drugs. Hmm. And um, would you say diet and exercise plays a role in um, your quality of sleep? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, but what's interesting, it's probably in terms of diet, it's a little bit more about when you eat. Um, so you know, trying not to eat a big meal right before you go to bed. What happens is people eat a big meal, you know, sort of Thanksgiving time or whatever, It's and uh, whether it's the tryptophan and the turkey, but uh, makes it really easy for you to fall asleep, but then typically people kind of rebound and wake up, you know, three or four hours later and then have trouble going back to sleep. Hmm. So we recommend not eating a big meal right before you go to bed. You know, usually want to eat uh, like two hours before you go to bed. Um, the other thing is things to avoid. So alcohol, great at putting you to sleep, but as the alcohol comes out of your system, it's going to be activating and you're going to wake up. So people have a couple glasses of wine or beers or whatever, since we're in San Diego and they're IPAs, you know, it help you go to sleep, hard to wake up. Okay. Um, exercise is great. We also just try to tell people not to exercise right before they want to go to bed. So if you're getting your heart rate and your blood pressure up, it's going to be hard for your body to physically be ready to sleep, you know, within an hour or two of doing that. Okay. So mo mostly maybe right when you wake up in the morning, get your exercise in or at least a few hours before, before sleeping. Yeah. Um, so um, I guess um, I know we had talked about, um, you know, cannabis and how you, tr you know, you attempted to put in a grant and it was, you know, denied. But do you have any, you know, uh, insight on what marijuana has, what effects it has on our sleep and um, the quality of our sleep? Yeah. So, um, uh, the short answer is no, and not many people do. And we talked a little bit about this, but for many years, uh, and still, marijuana, you know, is not legal at the federal level. So the biggest supporter of research in this country is the National Institutes of Health, and um, it has not been easy to study cannabis or, or marijuana's effect on sleep. Um, so since we live in California, as I mentioned to you, um, yeah, there is a center for um, medical cannabis research here at UCSD. And um, they're taking some of the tax on recreational cannabis and using that money. So actually, I just found out yesterday that we are getting a grant to look at how people can use cannabinoids to wean off of sleeping pills. So if you're already taking Ambien, if you're already taking um, Xanax or different medicines, could we use um, cannabinoids as a, as a better alternative? Interesting. It seems that there could be some pushback from even the drug companies that are yeah. trying to deny that these uh, this research from happening because it may take Ambien off the market in the future or at least you know take a lot of their business away 
Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, you know, I think that the drug companies have been very aggressive about marketing drugs for sleep. I mean, if you kind of think about it, um, you know, sleep, everybody has a couple bad nights of sleep. I mean, if um, I think it's really tough if you've gone out on Friday and Saturday night, you're up late, um, and now Sunday night is coming around, you try to go to bed early, but you're not tired because maybe you slept in on Sunday uh, morning a little bit, you're sort of stressed about the work week, like that's a natural, those are all normal things that's happening to you. And I think that the, you know, drug companies have said it's sort of made it unacceptable and you have to take a medicine for that. So, um, so I agree with you, but there's a, there's also a tremendous amount out there about what marijuana does for sleep. And, and all that is very anecdotal. I'm not saying it doesn't do things. I just, if somebody says, you know, it, it's been shown that this improves sleep, um, take that with a grain of salt too. Hmm. So we definitely need more data. Um, but yeah, anecdotally, I have people who swear by it. Um, I have little old ladies who are going into marijuana dispensaries and trying brownies and oils and all sorts of stuff. And some of them have really struggled with sleep and they swear by it. Um, but I tend not to make a strong recommend. You know, if people want to try it, I tell them that they can try it. But it's still it's still a drug. Um, and even if it's you know natural, quote unquote. Um, you know, you still get alcohol's natural. I mean, there's a lot of natural things that have harm, so you got to be it's careful true. about it too. Yeah, we see that even uh, in the hospital. Some patients will just pull out their little tincture. They're yeah. like, "No, you can't take that here." Like, <laughs> um, so it's it's kind of then they get upset when we take it away. But you know, we can't have these patients high on what we're giving them plus right. marijuana. So right. again, I think it's a really exciting time. I mean, we're we're just starting to answer these questions. The other part we didn't talk too much about, but you know, the way we measure sleep right now is we bring people into a sleep lab and we hook them up to all these wires, and, and that's not very natural, and you can't do that for weeks at a time. So you know, most of the studies of any medication for sleep, it's like you took a sugar pill one night, and then you came in and you got the drug another night, and you see the differences, but what are the effects over time? So I think we're just getting to the point where things like Fitbit and other wearables can actually track sleep over time in a large number of people. Um, so, so it's gonna be cool to see the answers for these things in the next few years. Okay, so in the future, you, there are um, some things coming out that are gonna be able to track sleep a lot better at this point? Yeah, I think so. I think that um, you know, right now, as I said, we, we bring people into laboratory, we hook them up with an EEG on their head and all sorts of other sensors. Um, and and that's probably more complicated than we need. And so uh, Fitbit has a decent algorithm, the Apple Watch, or a number of devices out there that purport to measure sleep and have some pretty good validation data. It's almost always in like 20 and 30 year old, like perfectly healthy people, so probably okay. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to the podcast could probably get a pretty good marker of their sleep by using some of those devices. And is that all based usually on, on heart rate? Each. Uh, Technology has a different has different sensors that they're looking at. Most of them will use things like movement. So if you're not moving, you're probably asleep. Um, but a lot of them look at heart rate. Some of them look at heart rate variability. You can look at temperature changes on the skin, which uh, when your body's in different sleep stages, you tend to send more blood to the skin versus to your core. And some of it's proprietary, so I don't I don't know. But there are um, a few different signals that people can look at. Okay. Um. And in terms of um, certain disease processes, I know you, you study uh, sleep apnea as one of your 
main things that um, that you deal with. Uh, could you kind of hit on what is sleep apnea and some of the signs and symptoms? Sure. So, uh, yeah, as you said, it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, it's also incredibly common. And as we've been talking about how important it is to get enough sleep, if you have something like sleep apnea, um, even though you're getting enough hours of sleep, uh, your sleep is getting disturbed quite frequently. So you, you tend to feel tired, your brain is not as sharp, and you have all the health consequences as if you weren't getting enough sleep. So the, the kind of sleep apnea that I study the most and which is the most common is called, is called obstructive sleep apnea. And that's where you're still trying to breathe air in, but let's say your tongue is rolled back, something is getting in the way of that air going into your body. Um, and so people really struggle to breathe and after some period of time, their oxygen goes down uh, and they wake up. And when you wake up, it, it activates your um, par your sympathetic nervous system, your fight or flight system. So your heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up. So people with sleep apnea typically have higher blood pressure, higher heart rates than other people. Um, so again, incredibly common. Snoring is a symptom or a sign of obstructive sleep apnea. There are people who snore who don't have sleep apnea, so just, um, you know, just to reassure you. But, one, mm -hmm. but oftentimes people are also told, hey, I notice you stop breathing at night. And once you hear that, you probably do have sleep apnea. It's just a question of severity. And what do you recommend to these people that, you know, maybe their partner's telling them that they're, you know, um, they're not breathing when they're sleeping or um, even if they notice themselves that, you know, some symptoms, maybe people are telling them they snore or uh, they're waking up in the middle of the night often. Um, probably need to get a sleep study. Um, so we have, there are a number of questionnaires that you can ask people, and they only take about 10 seconds to do, that sort of predict whether or not you have sleep apnea. But most of the time now, we're sending people home with a small testing kit, and, uh, and you measure somebody's breathing and respiratory effort overnight in oxygen. And, and I think it's important for two reasons. One is that people often are having symptoms of sleep apnea. You know, they're tired. I typically ask people if they have trouble behind the wheel. You know, are they mm -hmm. falling asleep? Are they in traffic and they're nodding off? And, and you would not believe how many people tell me yes to that question. So it's an important safety thing. They're really feeling tired. Um, second thing is once in a while we find people who've got really severe sleep apnea, and it is contributing to things like high blood pressure or atrial fibrillation. Mm. Um, so, again, we see a lot of people who come in and say, you know, my wife says I snore. And yeah. then they invariably say, but she snores louder. And we <laughs> test them and we find out if they do or don't have sleep apnea. And they both have sleep apnea, and, you have and they to get his and her sleep apnea machines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and again, you know, I, I have to say that the, the data are most convincing for when you have moderate or severe sleep apnea. So that's when I, you know, kind of treat people. If you have mild sleep apnea and you don't have symptoms, probably don't need to worry about it very much. Um, so take a measured approach. Okay. And um, well, I mean, I can even speak to that because patients come in all the time in the ICU, and they have no history of sleep apnea, but you know, they're apneic when they sleep sometimes, you know, not even being on narcotics yeah. or sedatives. And it's like, well, you might have sleep apnea, but obviously we take care of that in the outpatient setting usually. But um, I see that often where patients become apneic and drop their O2 saturations and um, more, you know, in a lot, of, a lot of the patients that come through here, so. Yeah, so, you know, you and I are talking about ICU patients, but, but work out of um, University of Chicago and other places, Penn, has shown that if you go to the wards um, and people who are admitted for heart failure or whatever, you know, a, a large number of them have obstructive sleep apnea. And it may mm -hmm. be important. It may be if you treat those people, turns out their readmission rates are lower. 
Um, so it's probably important and being in the hospital might be a teachable moment. So if you tell your patient, hey, I noticed you stopped breathing, I do see people in the clinic who say, you know, I was told, like a lot of it's like I had my colonoscopy or whatever and they gave me the sedatives and I stopped breathing and everyone yeah. got, you know, really, um, you know, anxious for a couple moments and, and people come in, they get tested. So that's, that's actually really useful is what I would say. Um, so there's a ton of sleep apnea in the hospital. Um, and, uh, you know, I would maybe just let your patients know and they can follow up as an outpatient, but, but it might be a way to sort of bend the curve in terms of their overall health. Okay. Um, and speaking to our patients that are not only in the ICU, but all over in the hospital, yeah. um, how can we improve their quality of sleep? And, you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, putting these patients on, you know, sleep therapy and letting them sleep at night? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I have been really interested, as you said, I, I work in the ICU, but I'm also a sleep doc. So I'm really interested in sleep in the hospital and sleep in the ICU. And can we make it better? Um, patients almost universally rate sleep in the hospital as poor or very poor or some version of that or some, you know, some curse word. Um, and, you know, beyond just kind of patient satisfaction, um, if you get poor sleep the night before, patient's blood pressure in the morning is usually higher, their glucose is usually higher, sort of worse control. And then in the ICU, uh, Beer and Camdar, uh, now one of our docs here at UCSD, but at Johns Hopkins, they put in a sleep um, promoting uh, bundle in their ICU, and they were able to reduce their rates of ICU delirium by about 20%. Hmm. So I think sleep is, is bad in the hospital, patients don't like it, uh, and it's associated with bad outcomes. So, mm -hmm. so I think a lot of what we can do is basically try to let people sleep at night, and we're really bad at that, either from light or sound, or um, just the number of interactions that you may have had. When you were a night nurse, you know, how many times were you in and out of a room? Sometimes and, hourly, every 15 minutes even, yeah. waking the patient up. So, so, you know, there's different studies that have looked at this, but, you know, in a patient in the ICU, there may be 40 times in a, in a night shift that somebody's going in and out of the room. And so people have looked at doing things like bundling care, you know. So I, I think that's probably the simplest thing is, like, instead of going in 40 times, can you go in 20 or 10 times? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we've done some work on this um, here and at Scripps, uh, Stuthi Jaswal and I, and we found that there's a lot of noise pollution, um, not as much light pollution, which was reassuring to us. You know, there's, it's not that the ICU lights were on all the night. Problem actually was that lights aren't bright enough during the day, so people aren't getting enough of kind of the, the light activating effect during the day. Um, so anyway, I think just be conscious of the environment that you're putting your patient in. And I'll say one other thing. When we've asked people why do they have trouble sleeping in the hospital, yes, there are environmental factors. Um, but turns out there's a lot of anxiety about, you know, different tests that people are going through or kind of what will happen when they're in the hospital. And I think that's a real role for the bedside clinician, you know, to provide a little bit of education. You know, hey, we might go for a CAT scan tonight. Do you know what a CAT scan is? Let, let me tell you, you know, it's going to be painless. Um, you know, the, the sort of things that we assume that people know, because we talk about CAT scans and whatever else all the time, I think that there's a, a huge role for just providing a little bit of education, taking that anxiety down a little bit, um, and then people will sleep better. Okay. I think that, you know, I've, I've worked in all the ICUs, you know, from neuro to burn to, um, you know, now in the medical ICU, surgical oncology. Um, neuro ICU seemed to be one of the worst because we were going in for neuro checks and we had to wake them up every the hour. one hour, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, seem, some, sometimes more often if in, 
I've been at places where you know they would give them you know from 12 from uh, 12 midnight to 6 a.m. don't even go in the room right but we all know that's Hard not always yeah, <laughs> not yeah. always possible but um, I think some doctors are better than others some hospitals could be better um, and I think it's really important because I, I did see it did seem that my patients were happier when I can just say goodnight and close the curtains you know right right and they knew we weren't we weren't gonna bother them unless they called you know so well uh, I guess a, you know a lot to lot to talk about there but you know those q1 hour neuro checks there is tremendous variability in when people stop those meaning when um, doctors say okay now we don't need to do that anymore some docs stop them within 24 hours other people it's like three days you know so I think and the data for doing the q1 hour neuro checks is not that great um, so you know I, I think you could uh, advocate for your patient hey you know it's been a day you know you're on morning rounds do we still need to do this or not mm-hmm. and a lot of time you know people are busy and they don't think about these things it's true and so you know I think you could advocate for your patient say do we really need to do this for another day can I mean even going to q2 would would be a big difference um, so yeah I think I think we should probably push back and protect our patients sleep a little bit on that uh, if we can hmm. yeah it seems like most doctors, at least, you know, now nowadays, are more open to making those changes, and um, I have seen it more. Like in the last um, couple of hospitals I've worked at, um, there's either been the you know, the midnight to 6 a.m. rule, yep. or um, you know, neuro checks would switch to a you know, less frequent time overnight, and then go back to Q1 hour during the day. I've seen that too. So. Um, so I think we covered mostly everything. I Great. want to be mindful of your time, and um, I really appreciate you coming here and sure. you know interviewing with me. I think this is awesome. Yeah, no problem. This is uh, Dr. Robert Owens. Uh, we're here at UC San Diego, and um, you know talking about sleep. And I think that people can benefit from not only you know being mindful of their sleep their sleep patterns and you know getting off night shift for these nurses that are (laughs) (laughs) working nights but um, I hope everyone enjoyed this and has a something to take away from it that can help maybe improve their overall health and sleep I'm Chuck Myers with Martial Arts Med and thank you for listening and I'll see you next time thank you Dr. Owens great thanks Chuck